I can't remember the last time that a sermon series created the kind of buzz that I've been hearing about this one, this one on spiritual warfare. It's kind of caught me by surprise, and frankly, I find it a little bit daunting uh, to wade into these waters. This has been a challenging week to prepare for this message, uh, and I don't suppose I should be surprised. I don't know that the enemy of our soul really wants us to be talking very much about him and how to do battle with him. Um, So we're going to move into some uncharted waters in some ways today. I don't feel like an expert on spiritual warfare, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit has uh, compelled me to preach on this. And so I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to ask you to do the heavy lifting with me. It's going to require us together to work, because we're going to look at a lot of Scripture. We're going to go into some deep, uh, deep waters, and uh, I really need to know that you are a part of this with me, that we are leaning in together on this. I think if we do this faithfully, we will come out as a stronger church and more effective uh, as kingdom representatives in, in our community and our world. So why don't we ask the Holy Spirit to help us in this and then dive in, all right? Holy Spirit, we ask you to do that. Do what only you can do. Will you unite our hearts and open up our spirits to discern what you're trying to teach us in the ways that we tend to be nervous or uncertain or even doubtful about some of these things. May we bow before the authority of your word and listen to your leading and, and, and come from this together as a, a body united in the great battle for the souls of the world. For the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Last week I uh, preached, as we concluded our series on intercede, I preached on what is the quintessential, I think, the quintessential Christian ethic, the teaching of Jesus to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And I ask you to do that this week. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I've already heard from many of you how hard that was. Uh, when you think about the, 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 the harm that has done you and the people that have wounded you, uh, to, to, you, you really want to strike out, don't you? You want to retaliate. And instead to be called to love them and to pray for them, that is a, a, that is a great challenge. It's a challenge that only the, the Spirit of Jesus can accomplish in us. It's a challenge that the Apostle Paul would have understood very well because there were few people, I suspect, in all of the history, who were brutalized for his faith, like the Apostle Paul was. He tells us in 2 Corinthians, some of what he endured, he was whipped, he was flogged, he was beaten with rods, he was stoned, he was imprisoned, uh, he was shipwrecked, he was snake bit, he was robbed. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that Paul might have responded angrily at the people, the enemies that were attacking him and coming against him. But somehow in the midst of that assault against his person, Paul had a vision of the Lord, of a new and really a revolutionary way that he ought to respond and that we ought to respond when we see this kind of conflict in our lives. He talked about this when he wrote to the Ephesians in the masterful uh, chapter 6, the armor of God passage, and we're going to come back to that one because you can't talk about the spiritual warfare without putting on the armor of God, so we'll come back to that. But in there is a, a verse that is, it sums up the, the journey that we are going to be on in these next six weeks, and I really think the journey we are on as believers. And so I'm going to ask us to stand 
in a sense, in honor of the, the power of this passage. And I want us to read it together, Ephesians six 12. We're going to recite this together. I ask us to do it slowly. Don't just ramble through the words. Pay attention to what we are saying. So let us stand in, in, uh, in obedience before God's word. Let me see the text. Here we go. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces. I want you to read it one more time. Take even a little more time with it. Here we go. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you have seen or heard of the movies, uh, the Hunger Games series? Hunger Games? It's an epic series. It's set in post-apocalyptic America. And uh, it's in a situation that this, this nation is now being governed by a, a ruthless dictator named President Snow. And President Snow entertains his people by forcing their children to fight gladiatorial conflict, uh, contests against each other to the death. It's quite a stark uh, storyline. The heroine of the show is a girl named Katniss Everdeen. Katniss Everdeen. She wins the, the battle, this epic battle, but as she is forced to continue to do battle with this, she has a, a meeting with her mentor, a guy named Hamish. And Hamish tells her these important words. He says, you need to remember who the real enemy is. And Katniss in the, in the movie is transformed by that. She suddenly begins to realize that it is not these other kids and these other gladiators with, with, with whom she is doing battle, but it is really President Snow, the man who is behind it all, the evil force that is orchestrating all of that. He is the real enemy. In the passage that we just read and in other passages that Paul gives to us, he tells us that we, we are engaged in a great spiritual gladiatorial contest. And there are forces in this world who want to discourage us, who want to tear down our marriages, who want to steal our children and our health and our wealth, who want to wreak havoc in the world through racism and hatred and murder and division. And when we see these things happening in our lives and in the lives of those that matter to us, and and even as we look at the news and, and see this going on in the world around us, our natural human response is to strike back, isn't it? To want to be angry at the perpetrators of this evil, to do something against them, to fight against them. But it is the Apostle Paul who reminds us in this moment of something very important. He says, remember who the real enemy is. The arch enemy who hates all that is good and right. The arch enemy who hates God, hates his church, hates his people. Who is doing everything he can to subvert the will of God, the kingdom of God. That arch enemy has his name. And the Bible calls him Satan. Satan. This is the one enemy for whom we are not called to pray. The Bible tells us to do many things towards Satan, to resist him, to fight him, 
to stand against his schemes, to be watchful for him. All of those are commands from the Bible of what we ought to do against Satan. But we're not called to pray for him. And by the way, Satan is not alone in his nefarious, malevolent activities. He has a group of minions who are doing his bid, who also are trying to thwart and vex us. The Bible calls them unclean spirits or demons. If you've read the Gospels, you've seen these words again and again. Today we're going to dive into them in a little more detail. We citizens of the Western world, particularly, we, um, we tend to believe that reality is only that which we can perceive with our senses. You understand that about us, don't you? If we cannot see, hear, taste, touch, or smell it, it's not real. This is what is real. This. This is real. And if we cannot perceive it with those senses, then it's not real. And we who are intellectual, we who are educated, if it is not logical and if it is not scientific, then we dismiss it as being unreal. But the Bible teaches very clearly, beloved, that there are two realms of reality. One of them is the physical realm that we feel, touch, taste, smell, see. But there is a second realm of reality... And it's a spiritual reality that we cannot perceive with our five senses. Um, There is an overlap between that spiritual and that physical reality, that realm. Um, And this is what we need to begin to understand as followers of Christ. Paul uses the phrase in the text that we just saw, heavenly places. And we tend to think that when he means that, when he uses that phrase, and by the way, he says it five different times in his writings, we tend to think heaven, heaven up there, heavenly places up there, physical places, earthly places down below, that there's this great separation. But that is not true for Paul. And if you pay attention to the totality of his teaching, you realize that for Paul there is an entire other realm on this earth. Beyond this physical realm of ours, there is a spiritual realm, and we cannot see, touch, taste, feel, or smell it. But by the the work of the Spirit within us, we can discern it. We can learn to sense it spiritually. Think about it this way. If you were to walk out into the Sonoran Desert in the middle of the night with a flashlight and flick on the flashlight, you, you wouldn't see anything probably because the, skitter, the, the, the critters would just skitter away. But if you walk out into that desert with an ultraviolet flashlight and turn it on, this is what you're likely to see. There's something about the scorpions that reacts to this different kind of light. If it was a regular light, we wouldn't even see them. They would be gone. But, but because of this ultraviolet light, we're actually able to see them in the darkness, see things we wouldn't otherwise be able to perceive. If we could imagine that we could put on an ultraviolet spiritual headlamp and turn it on right here, we would be, I think, surprised to discover the spiritual beings that also occupy this place. Jesus, Paul, all of the apostles taught us that we share this realm with spiritual beings that we cannot see apart from that spiritual ultraviolet headlight and the spiritual senses that that God gives to us. And by the way, these are not all frightening, dark, and stark kinds of creatures that we would perceive. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that there are good spirits. There's a name for those good spirits. What are they called? 
angels. And they have been given to us for the purpose of protecting and loving and defending uh, and encouraging us. You have those kind of ministering spirits, I wonder if you are even aware of that, that are at work in your life encouraging you. So it's not all really, really scary. And, and of course, the greatest uh, unseen spiritual force that exists within this spiritual realm lives right within you. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. You already believe that, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you already believe that the non-corporeal, the non-flesh, non-material spirit of Jesus resides within you. That's how we come to Christ. That's how we are forgiven our sins. That's how we are transformed and and turned into the people that God wants us to be by the work of this non-physical presence that is alive within us. So if you believe that, you're already along the way to beginning to understand the reality of this dual realm of reality in which we live right now. Statistically, the vast majority of Americans believe in a God they cannot see vast majority of Americans believe in God. They believe in heaven. They all believe they're going there. I've never, you know, not many people don't think they're going to go to heaven. They all think they're going to go there. 97% of evangelicals believe in angels. But what's interesting is a majority of American Christians do not believe in a literal devil. So apparently we are happy to believe in the good that we cannot see spiritually, but we are reluctant to believe in the evil that we cannot see spiritually. It's the ultimate of spiritual denial. And granted, there are some churches, some traditions, that they talk so much about evil spirits and demons and exorcisms and so forth that it feels like it's obsessive. I mean, it's just too much. They wonder if that's only what they believe in. On the other hand, there are other groups in the Christian family, like Presbyterians, who tend not to talk about this enough. We'd rather not do it. It doesn't kind of fit with our well-educated, kind of intellectual, control-freak nature as Presbyterians. But in a world like ours today, where the forces of evil are increasingly brazen and brutal, and in a, a season when we are learning what it means to really pray, I felt convicted of the Spirit that we needed to tackle this. We need to take a run at this that might be uncomfortable and unfamiliar and even off-putting to some of us. And it might seem odd also, given that we are starting Lent this Sunday. It's the first Sunday of Lent, which is the season of preparation for the celebration of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and the resurrection of Jesus following his crucifixion. It might seem odd to tackle a topic like spiritual warfare. But I would remind you of what the Apostle John, who was the most beloved of Jesus' apostles, said in his first letter. He said, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. And how is it that Jesus did that? He accomplished that victory through his suffering, through his death, and through his resurrection. So if there's any season when we ought to be talking about spiritual warfare, it ought to be lent when we remember that the victory has been fought for us by Christ, that that the works of the devil were destroyed, and so we enter into that in this journey of Lent. I'm going to start our series today, and it's going to be a journey. I hope you'll come each week, because we're going to layer this one layer on another, and you'll need all parts of it. I want to start this Sunday by 
laying some biblical groundwork for what we are going to be doing in the weeks to come. First of all, I'll tell you this. Satan is uh, a created being. Sometimes we imagine that Satan is the co-eternal kind of mirror image of the good God. He's the bad God. Uh, But that is not true. There is only one eternal being that is Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the creator of all things through his son Jesus, who is preeminent over all. In fact, Colossians talks about the preeminence of Christ when it says this, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, these are spiritual things right here, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Do you hear the absolute preeminence of Christ? So Satan is not kind of God's naughty counterpoint. He is a created being of God. Many biblical scholars believe that he was, in fact, an angel, the most beautiful of angels that was created. Referenced, some believe, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, where Isaiah talks about the morning star. That's the name given to this, this, this being. By the way, do you know the translation for morning star? Lucifer. Lucifer. The morning star. Lucifer. One view is that Lucifer was the most beautiful of the created angels and that he led a rebellion in his arrogance against God and he and the angels who followed him were cast out from heaven. Now, honestly, the the passages about the origins of Satan are very few and cryptic. It's hard to settle with certainty on the meaning of it, but the reality is he is here. There is an enemy to our soul, and all you have to do is journey through the scriptures to discover him from beginning to end. So that's what I want to do, and this is where I said we're going to need to do a little work together. So lean in. The name by which the devil is known in the Old Testament, as I told you, is Satan, Satan. And by the way, when I was typing this, trying to write this sermon, it kept auto-correcting to say Stan. Somehow, a malevolent spiritual archenemy named Stan doesn't hold much terror. (laughs) Satan is the Hebrew word for accuser or adversary. Adversary, accuser. That's the image right there. Satan doesn't appear that often in the Old Testament, about 18 times. But he is there. And the first time that we discover him, you know very well. Where is it? The Garden. The Garden of Eden. Now, he actually doesn't even appear as Satan there. He appears as what? The serpent. But we know from the book of Revelation, in the other end of the book, John tells us that Satan was in fact the, uh, in disguise as the serpent in the garden. So that's the first appearance that we see when he comes in, and of course, he sows disbelief and introduces sin into uh, the story of humanity. The next time we run into Satan is in the book of Job. Remember that? One of the oldest books that we have in the Bible. And Job is the story of Satan who goes to God, and, and he asks permission to tempt Job so that he will deny his faith. And by the way, he fails, he fails in that endeavor. And, and then the next time we see Satan in the Old Testament is the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, where he appears as something like a spiritual prosecuting attorney coming against the people of Israel uh, before God. By the way, accusing, that's, that's the name for Satan, the accuser. 
We also see glimpses of him maybe in Isaiah 14, maybe in Ezekiel chapter 28. Like I said, maybe 18 times in total. Not a lot of times, but definitely we see him throughout. It is when we come to the New Testament, though, that Satan's nasty works are really in in stark uh, contrast, in stark relief. The New Testament gives us a new name that first appears, and the name for Satan in the New Testament is Diabolos, the devil. Diabolic, Diabolos, the devil. And that means, the, the devil, Diabolos, means slanderer or splitter. Splitter. I find that image of Satan to be most compelling, the splitter. He, it is he who splits relationships, splits lives, who dr- seeks to drive a wedge in families and in marriages and between children and friends, who seeks to split the relationship between us and with, between our God. The splitter, it seems very apt, doesn't it? Diabolos, the splitter. The word devil appears 35 times in the Gospels alone. 35 times. And he is also known by other names, and you'll recognize these. Beelzebub. Beelzebub, do you know what it means? The Lord of Dung. Or the Lord of the Flies is another translation. The Lord of the Flies. He is also known as the Prince of Demons, the Evil One, the Tempter, the Thief. Jesus calls him a murderer the father of lies, and the ruler of the world. The ruler of the world, only for now. John calls him the destroyer. Peter calls him the adversary that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy whom he will. And Paul talks about the devil as coming in the disguise as an angel of light. Angel of light. So Diabolos does not always present himself in this hideous, frightening, pitchfork, horn-tailed red guy. He normally presents himself incognito as something that is beautiful and reasonable and enticing and seductive. Diabolos, the angel of light. It's why I chose the, the title for this first sermon Finding the shiny thread. Remember last year when we did the journey through the story and we were finding the scarlet thread, right? That's Jesus. The appearances of Jesus from the earliest moments of Scripture to the end. There's a scarlet thread that's woven through the story. Well, there is a shiny thread woven through the story. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, we see the appearance again and again of this evil one weaving his way into God's story. A man, that, a person that we know as Satan, the accuser, the adversary, the evil one, the Lord of the flies, the Lord of dung. So why am I spending so much time on this, teaching this, this first sermon? To frighten you? No, it's to enlighten you. It's to enlighten you. First of all, I want you to believe that the devil is real. I want, some of you are not persuaded perhaps, if this congregation is anything like American Christendom, then a good percentage of you don't really believe in a real devil, or you'd prefer to ignore him, out of sight, out of mind. Both approaches are perilous, I would dare say. If the Bible teaches that Satan is real, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and Peter all teach that the devil is real, If the Lord Jesus, 
who devoted a third of his miraculous ministry to casting out evil spirits, if the Lord Jesus believed in and did battle with Satan, if the entire witness of Scripture from beginning to end teaches us that we have a spiritual enemy named Satan who loathes God, who hates good, who wants to thwart and confound and frustrate our discipleship, then are we really so arrogant and foolish as to say otherwise? As I said, most Americans prefer not to believe that there is a devil at all, and by the way, he loves that. It is his preference that we not take him seriously, that we treat him as a cartoon caricature. Satan does his best work when people think he's a fairy tale. I will tell you this, two-thirds of the world don't think he's a fairy tale. Two-thirds of the world take very seriously this spiritual battle. And I will share with you in the coming weeks how the recognition of evil and in the name of Jesus, the power to deliver people from possession and obsession in in evil spirits. It's one of the most effective evangelistic tools in the two-thirds world. Satan is real. Here's what we also need to be assured of, though. Satan is defeated. Satan is defeated. I I will teach more on this next week when I preach on uh, Christus Victor, the Christ the victor. But the most compelling aspect of Jesus' ministry, the one that caused more and more people to say, he teaches with such authority. Who has ever seen such a thing as this? Was Jesus' regular confrontation with and defeat of Satan and his demonic forces. We have nine... uh, uh, exorcisms that are described in great detail, 26 allusions to them in the Gospels. It was a prominent part of Jesus' ministry. The Old Testament is full of all kinds of miraculous accounts. It has great miracles. It has miracles of healing and dividing of the waters and so forth. The Old Testament even has the raising up of the dead. But nowhere in the Old Testament will you find anything like what Jesus Christ did when he was on earth. When with a word he would speak to the demonic forces inside of a hapless victim. And at the power of his voice, that, that demon would be forced to leave and that person was set free. You find nothing like that anywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus in his ministry destroyed the works of the devil. And by the way, Satan saw this coming. He did everything he could to derail the ministry of Jesus. If you recall, what is the first thing that occurred after Satan, after Jesus was baptized? What did he do? He was driven. And we are told in one gospel he was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to do battle with the devil. In other words, Jesus said, bring it on. Might as well start right now. We're just going to lay the groundworks. And he said, bring it on. And Satan did everything he could to derail him, to offer him the world so that he might avoid the cross. And Jesus said, nothing doing. And Jesus was obedient to the cross. And we believe by his death on the cross, by his shed blood, by his resurrection, Satan, his goose was cooked. He's only biding his time. Revelation points out a time that is coming in the future. Someday, after thousands of years of creating all this murderous mayhem, we are told that the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And to all of that, God's people would say, Amen. So Satan is real. Satan is defeated. Here's the other thing we need to remember this journey at the beginning of this journey. Satan is defiant. Satan is defeated, but he is defiant. 
He is trying to wreak as much havoc as he can because he knows the gig is up. And it's only a matter of time. How many of you remember back to the Kuwait War in 1990? Remember? Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait with the Iraqi forces. They took the place over. They pillaged. They raped the land, of course. And, uh, but a great coalition force came in under Storman Norman Schwarzkopf, and they kicked those Iraqi butts out of that country and all the way back to their own land. I mean, they just crushed them, didn't they? And so they fled uh, before the power of the coalition forces. But on the way out of the country, do you remember what they did? They set fire to 732 Kuwaiti oil wells. Those wells burned, in some cases, for up to eight months. The environment was devastated. The, the, the landscape was devastated. You could see the, the plumes of smoke from satellite images in the sky. This was pure spite. Pure spite. They knew they had lost, but they were going to make life as miserable and bleak and ugly as they could for the victors. And that is exactly the work of Satan right now. He's trying to cause as much trouble, as much mayhem, as much devastation as he can, while he can. And our task as followers of the victorious Jesus is to recognize Satan's evil work and in the power of the Holy Spirit do battle with him. Take back stolen land. I'm going to talk more about that in the weeks to come, but I would challenge us in this week as we're kind of dipping our toe into the battle, into the, into the water, I, I challenge us to do two things. First of all, I would challenge us to begin to train our spiritual eyes. Again, as Presbyterians, we don't tend to think these ways, but we need to begin to look at things that are going on in our lives and around us with a new awareness, a spiritual awareness that is informed by Paul's words that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against authorities, against rulers, against cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces in these heavenly places. We need to begin to see those things in a new way. Not, not paranoid, not freaking out, but aware. Now, I mean, the fact is, sometimes you just get sick. It's part of our, our broken world. Sometimes you end up in conflict with someone that matters to you. Sometimes you do a business deal and you lose a lot of money. Not, not every setback is a demonic attack. But if you find yourself in intense strife, if you feel like you're getting hit from all sides at the same time, if you find yourself in deep conflict with your spouse, if you... If you see your kids being t- pulled away from you into destructive relationship and habits, if you are in a crushing legal battle, if your health seems to be under assault from all corners, if you are paralyzed by guilt for something that you confessed a long time ago and that God has forgiven to you, then it could be you might want to consider the possibility that you are in a season of attack from the enemy, that the accuser, the adversary, the slanderer, the splitter, the liar, the lord of the dung is attacking you, is trying to convince you that you're unworthy of God's love, is trying to break up your marriage, is trying to steal your kids and your health and your wealth, and you need to realize it and you need to fight back. Most of us Presbyterians don't think this way. But the battle is real. And if we begin to look with spiritual eyes to sense what the Holy Spirit might be prompting us to do to develop our gifts of spiritual discernment, then we will be better able to recognize and do battle with the enemy of our soul. And then I would say this one other essential thing to remember as we get started down this journey. There's power in the name of Jesus. 
There's power in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus has great spiritual force against which Satan cannot stand. The Apostle Paul touched on this in Philippians in his magisterial chapter 2 when he wrote that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you pray in the name of Jesus, when you rebuke evil in the name of Jesus, which we will learn how to do, that is an irresistible, unstoppable force before which the devil can only quail and quiver. In other words today, beloved, I don't want you to walk out of here frightened because we talked about the devil so much. I want you to walk out of here with your chins up. I want you to walk out of here empowered and emboldened because you realize that we are indeed engaged in an ongoing spiritual battle with the enemy of our soul, but that in the name of Jesus, that battle has already been won. And I would say there's one more thing I want you to remember, and it's a verse that's going to be a theme verse for our entire series. It comes from 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I've tweaked it a little bit because I want this to be a verse that we begin to claim for ourselves. When we perceive, when we see these things going on around us, that we say, you know, that might have a spiritual root to it. I want one of the things that we speak out loud to the demons or the evil forces that are at work. I want one of the things that we speak out loud to be this great affirmation. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Let's say it together. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in... Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, so we begin this journey tentatively. I confess my inadequacy to it, but you are entirely adequate. And so I pray that, that this week our people will begin to look with new eyes, will begin to hone their spiritual senses, will begin to pay attention to what is going on around them. Not in a sense of fear, not looking for a demon behind every bush, but realizing that what Paul said is true, that we, we are not fighting, contending against flesh and blood. We are contending against authorities and rulers and cosmic powers and spiritual forces in heavenly places. God, may we remember also that that battle has been won already and Satan is in this defiant holding pattern, but it is a lost cause. And the more that your people are empowered to believe in the power of the name of Jesus, the more ground he is going to lose and the sooner his demise will come about. So may this church be a part of bringing that to pass sooner than later. For we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.